have a friend in Atlanta. His name is the Reverend Dr. Gregory Ellison. Greg, as I call him, is on the faculty at Candler School of Theology. Candler is the theology school of Emory University. Uh, Greg is young and brilliant, and he's also known as one of the greatest uh, theologians and public theologians in the country today. Greg has done something very interesting over the last seven years when it comes to difficult topics. He's uh, written a book entitled Fear, with the plus sign, Less, so Fear Less Dialogues. And he goes around the country and he sets up what he calls experiments, which is really interesting for a theologian to use that language. Theologians are, um, we usually set up a, a, a theologian on one side of an argument and we put a theologian on the other side of the argument and then they debate like in a courtroom and then someone declares a winner. But Craig, as a public theologian, says, you know what, let's create some experiments and see what we come to learn. And he says, so if you're in the room today, just know sometimes like in a real lab, something might blow up. I thought that was going to be funnier. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'll try harder. Um, but, and he said, but even through those explosions, that's how we learn some things. I'm telling you this because the next five weeks, we're going to explore the topic of original goodness as opposed to taking off from the place of original sin. And I want to, I want it to treat it like it, it, it's an experiment. Because um, it would be really easy to go, wait, 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 wait. I've already made up my mind around this. I've been stuck. Hold on a second. We could also say, I don't know what you're talking about. And I would say, okay, that's fine. Welcome to the experiment. I want to create a space that's going to allow us to explore together what the Spirit of God may be revealing to us personally, corporately, and as a wider world. So with that lens, with that, I've set the table, with that hope in mind, I want us to begin this sermon series, and today I want us to focus on it begin, where we begin matters. Where we begin matters. And to do that, we're going to turn to uh, Genesis. In the Hebrew, the book of beginnings. The book of beginnings to chapter 1 of Genesis to verse 1, and I'm going to read through 5. So listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind, breath, spirit from God hovered over the face of the waters. And then God said, uh, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness, God called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Awaken us, O God. 
Awaken us to your spirit that hovers in this sanctuary, just as she hovered over the waters of creation. Reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words that they would be your word to us here and now. And breathe new life, O God, into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Awaken us, O God. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. It matters where we begin. It matters where we begin. Michelangelo was one of the greatest artists, not only of his generation, but in the history of all time. Michelangelo made his name as an artist, as a sculptor first. He was, at 26 years old, already quite famous and looking for his next project. And so he went to select a piece of marble for his next sculpture. He goes and he identifies a piece of marble that is on the fringe, right on the sidelines. And he said to the person who owned this place, he said, I want to carve out of that piece of marble. And the person said, you don't want that piece of marble. It's been sitting there for 25 years. It has been deemed to have some flaws in it. And there have been other sculptors who have come before you. And they think once you begin to carve into that piece of marble, all of the defects will show themselves. Michelangelo said, I want to carve out of that big slab of marble. And the person said, have at it. For three years, Michelangelo carved out of this marble that was deemed to be flawed. And at the end of the third year, what the marble emerged, some of you are shaking your heads, was the statue we know as David. Where we begin matters. It matters because in the eyes of some, that piece of marble was flawed. It was of no use. But in the eyes of Michelangelo, Michelangelo saw David, it matters where we begin. Michelangelo went on to reach new heights. This made other artists at the time really annoyed with Michelangelo because he was also uh, the best compensated artist of his time. So these uh, group of rivals went to Pope Julius II and they said Michelangelo would be an excellent pick to paint the Sistine Chapel. And Pope Julius II said, that is a fantastic idea. Michelangelo is the greatest artist of this generation. They said, wait one second. And he said, well, I mean, he's really good. I want to meet with Michelangelo. Pope Julius II met with Michelangelo, said, I want you to paint the Sistine Chapel. And Michelangelo said, I'm not a painter. The Pope said, you're an artist. He said, there's a difference. And the Pope said, I want you to paint the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo, who was not a painter by trade, he was a sculptor, had to learn a new type of painting. Uh, the painting on the Sistine Chapel is a fresco. And historians tell us, in order to get to the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel, they had to build incredible, uh, had to build, uh, incredible structures just so Michelangelo could get close enough to paint. And historians told us in 
artists tell us that he would have to lay on his back for hours and paint. And it took him a long time. And he would get really tired. And sometimes Michelangelo would fall asleep as he was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Legend has it, one day Michelangelo falls asleep as he is painting. And he has a dream. And in his dream, God visits Michelangelo and looks upon everything that he has painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And God says to Michelangelo, this is the most incredible thing I have ever seen. And Michelangelo says to God, I have dishonored you. I am so sorry. God says, what are you talking about? And Michelangelo said, I'm a sculptor. I'm not a painter. Look, there's an imperfection and there's an imperfection. The whole ceiling is filled with imperfection. And God said, Michelangelo, what are you looking at? And Michelangelo said, I'm looking at this painting, and it's ruined. And God said, Michelangelo, the problem is you're looking through your eyes. If you're looking through my eyes, you would see that it's perfect. You see, where you begin matters. In the eyes of Michelangelo, he saw in a piece of marble David. In the same artist's eyes, he saw the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel as being flawed. I don't know about you. Has anyone ever uh, Googled an image? Maybe you've done a virtual visit. Maybe you've gone to the Sistine Chapel yourself, stood underneath that ceiling and thought, yeah, he really messed this up. (laughs) And then some tour guide in Italian pulls out some laser pointer and goes, yep, messed up there, messed up there. That face doesn't... No, that's asinine. You stand underneath the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and you have forgotten to breathe. It's... But the reality is, uh, most of us, do we not? If we're really honest, we look upon our lives like Michelangelo looked upon his painting. We uh, walk around and we put on um, spectacles, uh, frames, and we can only see imperfection everywhere. For example, how many people woke up this morning, uh, went and got your cup of coffee, made your way uh, into the bathroom, took a look at yourself in the mirror for the very first time today, and had this thought? Perfect. Uh, If you're that person, will you raise your hand? I said it the night. Okay. So, at the 9 o'clock hour, I said, uh, no one raised their hand, and I said, if we had a middle school boy in the room, we would have raised their hand. So thank you for being a middle school boy, Mark. And I say that because I was that middle school boy. Of course not, right? We look in the mirror and all we can see, and I'm just going to talk about myself for a second. Oh my gosh, there's more hair. Oh my goodness, is that a wrinkle? Did I gain weight? I mean, right? It's how you're wired to see. And the problem is, it would be okay if it just 
if it stayed there. Like if we could contain that way of thinking to the bathroom and to that mirror first thing in the morning, it would be totally fine. But the problem is we then end up walking out into the world and we still have those frames on. And this is where it gets really problematic. The places in our lives that we are most critical of ourselves is often the place that we are most critical of others. Because we're like, well, if I can't hold myself to that standard, right? They should be able to hold themselves to that standard. And this is where it gets really, 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 really problematic. Not just problematic, but dangerous. It gets dangerous when we then put that criticism and that critique and make it God's opinion of ourselves and others. When we begin to believe that God is critical in the same ways that we are critical, that God wears these frames just like we do. And Father Gregory Boyle says, we know that we have made God into our own image when God begins to hate the same people we do. I'm just going to say it again so we can catch our breath. We know that God, we have made God into our own image when God begins to hate the same people we do. But here's the problem with uh, these spectacles. The question is, uh, when did we learn to put these on? And who told us that the prescription in these glasses were to help us to see the brokenness and the problems of the world? Because I don't think that God does walk around with these glasses. I got to tell you, the God that I believe in, the God that uh, we know and love in Christ, actually is more, God will look upon your life like we look upon the Sistine Chapel far faster than God will look upon your life like we look upon the lives of others. So who taught us to wear these? I don't know, as a kid, um, I was taught, I, I was raised Presbyterian, and I was taught that um, we are flawed from the beginning, right? And we uh, are so flawed that we are in need of a God and God's grace. That's the only way that we can be good. And so I sort of lived with this my whole life because it had been handed down to me, and I just accepted it as, as truth. But the problem is, at some point in your life, you have to examine the things that have been handed down to you, and you have to decide whether or not you want to keep them. Like everyone in your house, I don't know, you have a piece of furniture that someone told you that you should accept and that you should keep and that your family valued. And at some point, you're going to wake up and go, I actually never, have never liked like that thing. Why have I moved it 50 different times? We got to do that with our theological furniture. Now, if you're a lifelong Presbyterian, this is that moment that I want to remind you we're in an experiment. So we'll just take a deep breath together. What if where we begin is not with brokenness and evil and sin. But what if we begin where God begins in Genesis with goodness? What if we begin with original goodness? How might that change everything? I'm going to unpack the unpack the text very quickly. Ready? 
only read five verses. Uh, Those five verses are the opening of a poem, not a science textbook. That poem tells us of a God who is so big and so expansive and so powerful that this God can create by merely speaking. God says and creation responds. This God is so big and values diversity so much that it takes this God seven days to create all the diversity of the world. And this God is so big that God creates out of yes and never out of no. God doesn't create and go, you know what, I, I didn't get that quite right. Um, control, alt, delete, restart. We'll just do, a, we'll do it over. No, God creates out of yes. And this God is so big that God looks upon everything that God has created and God declares it good. It's, creation didn't even have to prove its worth to this God. This God apparently looks upon it and the trees, just by being trees, are declared good. And just when we think we know the text, just like when you're at a concert and you have heard this song a million times, you know how the last line is going to go. The poem flips. This God declares every part of what God has created as good. And then God, they get to creating humankind in their image. Uh, The noun is plural in the Hebrew. God creates humankind in their image. And just when we think God is going to say they're good, nope. The only time in the poem, God looks upon humankind and declares they are very good. They are very good. So what if (laughs) those were the lenses by which we saw the whole world? What if it started with, uh, these frames are known as original goodness frames. You can get them, 19 bucks. They'll be out in the atrium following worship this morning. (laughs) It would change the way that you viewed the whole world. Someone here is like, yeah, 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 but what about original sin in the garden? Very good. Next week, we're going to get to the garden. We'll see you. But I want to speak to that just for a second. Desmond Tutu, who just died... Every time I don't know what to do with suffering of the world, I go to Desmond Tutu. He's the resident expert of the world's suffering. If you led the truth and reconciliation movement through uh, South Africa, you are an authority on suffering. Desmond Tutu says we have forgotten that we are made in the goodness of God. Even when we read the newspaper, our whole beings cry out, for this truth. Desmond Tutu says it in this way. How many of you have have ever read the newspaper and read about suffering and felt good about it? Desmond Tutu says, of course you've never read about suffering and felt good about it because your very nature does not have its origins in evil. Our very nature has its origins in goodness, and so we have an allergic reaction to the evil that we come to know about in the world. What if you're hardwired for goodness? How might that change the way you uh, see your life 
How might that change the way you understand your marriage or uh, what it means to be a parent or what it means to be a leader? How might that change who you think God is? Two quick illustrations. The first, uh, several years ago, our session uh, was having its session retreat. We were wrestling um, with a vision statement for the church. And so uh, what felt like 37 years of deliberation got distilled down into a Friday night, and we had all decided, you know what, this statement um, that trusting all belong to God and living to and seeking to live like we belong to one another. That's who we feel like God is calling us to be. But before we vote on it, let's all go home, sleep on it. We'll come back in the morning, and we'll vote. So we did that, and the next morning we come in. We have bagels and danishes and coffee, and uh, we convene. I, you know, we convene, we have worship, and then we said, are we ready to vote? And there was a young woman in the room, and she said, can I get the microphone for a second? And I thought, oh, goodness, like, I didn't have this planned. And she goes, I just want to tell a quick story. And I thought, man... Um, Okay, and she took the microphone and she said, "Um, before we vote, I just want to tell what happened to me last night. I got in the car. It was really late. I was really tired. It had been a really long week at the office. I called my partner on the way home and he said, why don't you pick up some ice cream? Come home. We'll watch a movie and uh, we'll just relax before you have to get up early. She said, that sounds great. So she pulled in the closest um, grocery store to her house was this Whole Foods. So she pulled into a Whole Foods and she gets the ice cream. She's tired. She's had a long week and she gets in line and there are like seven people in line. And she said it would be one thing if this was like Thanksgiving. It was not Thanksgiving. The cashier was really struggling just to ring up like gum. And she said, I was annoyed. I was so frustrated. Can we not get a competent person just to ring up gum? And she finally gets, uh, makes her way to the checkout person. And it's like that moment hit her. She's like, oh, yeah, we were just talking about that statement, trusting all belong to God, seeking to live like we belong to one another. And that moment awakened her, and it's almost like she took off those lenses of criticism, and she looked at this person, and she said, has it been a long day? A little different than, I've noticed it's taken you a long time to get me here. (laughs) She says, has it been a long day? Cashier? It's been a really long day. My car broke down on the way here. I really hope it's not something big because I just don't have enough money saved up to uh, take care of a big maintenance issue. And I'm sorry, I just haven't been able to think about anything else. I've been sort of distracted. This woman said, uh, I think that not only is a vision statement for what it should mean to be our church, but any vision statement that both is a declaration of faith And an invitation to discipleship should be our statement. I'm not even sure I called for the vote. (laughs) Everyone said, aye, and we moved on. Friends, the good news of the gospel is this. God has looked upon your life from its very beginning. And God has only seen one thing. God, in the waters of baptism, 
has taken you into God's arms and said, you are a child of the covenant, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. There is nothing that you can ever do that will ever separate me from you. You can think you can outrun me and let go of me, but you can never go where I am not. And nothing in your life will ever make me see you as anything other than good. So my dear friends, the invitation to this radical good news of the gospel is to accept that love and to allow yourself to be loved. To be loved. For I believe when you start there, if you begin there, oh, it changes everything. It changes your life and the world and even who you believe God to be. Will you pray with me? We believe, O oh God, help our unbelief and awaken us as we seek to live in response to this good news. By your grace, we pray. Amen.